And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. This morning we're going to finish up in chapter 7 of Romans. Uh, If you're physically able, if you would, just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. This is Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Would you just bow with me in prayer? Father, we come to you acknowledging that you are the author of these words, and as such, they are truth. Uh, Father, they are good for us. I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding, uh, Lord, that we might see the insights here to know what's going on in this battle with sin. So, Father, we pray that you do it for your honor and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week I spent a good portion of the sermon giving you reasons that I believe Paul is referring to himself in this last half of chapter 7. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, um, writer of 13 books in our New Testament, and by his own admission, the chief of sinners is who is in view here. And by extension, that's us as well. Now, John Murray was a mid-20th century theologian who garnered an awful lot of respect for his sound scholarship. Now, here's what he says concerning this section of Romans 7. He says, The presence of sin in the believer involves conflict in his heart and life. If there is remaining indwelling sin, there must be the conflict which Paul describes in Romans 7.14 and following. It is futile to argue that that conflict is not normal. If there is still sin to any degree in one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then there is tension, yes, contradiction within the heart of that person. Indeed, the more sanctified the person is and the more conformed he is to the image of the Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God and the greater the intensity of his love to God then the more conscious will he be of the gravity of the sin which remains, and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. The more closely he comes to the holiest of all, the more he apprehends the sinfulness that is his, and he must cry out, O wretched man that I am. End quote. 
Now you may recall last week that I said Paul gives four laments in this last section of Romans 7. The first three are very similar to each other in structure. The fourth closes out chapter 7. My intent this morning is to cover uh, the laments 2 through 4, looking at Paul's continuing struggle with sin. Now our main point this morning is rather easy. Our struggle with sin is all too real and frustrating, but Christ has the last word. So number one, the second lament. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do, do not do what I, the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not want, excuse me, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Alright, that's verses 18 through 20. The second lament follows the exact same pattern as the first. You have the condition, then you have the proof, and then the source. So A, let's look at the condition. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. To make sure that his readers don't misunderstand, Paul explains that the me in whom nothing good dwells is not the same as the I he has just mentioned in verse 17, which referred to his new, redeemed, incorruptible, Christ-like nature. That's that new creation. Our flesh, referring to our old humanness, which has not yet been fully transformed, that's where sin dwells. You see, the only place for sin in a believer's life is in his flesh. Uh, his unredeemed humanness. The flesh is not sinful in itself, but it furnishes sin a beachhead from which to operate in the believer's life. We've talked about this before. Uh, The body is not inherently evil. It simply is the means by which sin manifests itself. Well, B, we have the proof. Paul says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul longed to do good only. Present in his redeemed being was this desire to do God's will. Now the I used here, that doesn't correspond to the me in the first half of the verse, but to that I in verse 17. Now unfortunately, Paul was incapable of doing the good that his heart desired to do. He rephrases the same truth saying, the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. So I don't do the good I want to do, I do the evil I don't want to do. Again, Paul is not saying that he was totally incapable of doing anything that was good or acceptable. We saw that in last week's first lament. He's saying that he's incapable of completely fulfilling the requirements of God's holy law. Paul explained to the Philippian church, "...not that I have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now that's the Apostle Paul writing letters to the church at Philippi and says, Hey, I haven't arrived yet. I forget what's, what lies behind. I, I am reaching, continually reaching forward. You see, as those in Christ grow in their spiritual life, 
they inevitably have both an increasing hatred of sin and an increasing love for righteousness. As our desire for holiness grows, so will our sensitivity to and our aversion of sin. Conversely, Paul says that the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, we need to keep in mind that this is this considerable inner struggle with sin that remains unknown by the undeveloped and, and childish believer. These words are from a mature man of God. David was a man after God's own heart, was he not? He was honored by having the Messiah called the son of David. Yet no Old Testament saint seems worse, uh, seems a worse sinner or, or more conscious, conscious of his own sin. In the penitential psalms, Psalms 32 and 38 and 51, David agonized over his sin. He confessed it before God. He was so near to the heart of God that the least sin in his life clouded his vision. And he saw that as a great offense against God. We'll see, we have the source. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. This is very similar to what Paul wrote uh, in verses 16 and 17 that we looked at last week. Paul is using simple logic here, and he argues, if I am, if I am doing what I don't want to do, then it follows that I'm no longer the one doing it. He uses the phrase, no longer, again, referring to the time before his conversion. Before salvation, that inner I, that inner me who sinned, we agreed with the sin. Now, an unsaved person can't truthfully say that he is not doing it. He's, he has no moral or spiritual no-longers. He's never been brought to that place. Well, number two, let's look at the third lament. Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now the third lament is very much like the second and the first, both in substance and in order. So A, we have the condition. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The continuing presence of evil in a believer's life is universal. It's so universal that Paul doesn't see it as an uncommon thing. Rather, it's a common reality. He sees it to be a continually operating spiritual principle. Lingering sin does battle with every good thing a believer desires to do. Every good thought, every good intention, every good motive, every good word, every good deed. Do you remember the Lord was talking to Cain in the garden? This is after he and Abel had offered sacrifices, and Cain's offer was rejected. Now God's talking to him, and he says, Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Well, guess what, folks? Sin continues to crouch at the door, even at the door of believers, in order to lead them into disobedience. Well, B is the proof. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. When Paul says that he delights in the law of God, it's the first part of his proof that sin is no longer his master, that uh, he is indeed re redeemed by God. 
In other words, Paul's inner man that has been justified is on the side of God's law. Remember, he's already testified the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous. So he is no longer on the side of sin. But the unsaved, they are still on the side of sin. I'm going to take just a couple of minutes and look at Psalm 119. This is the longest chapter in Scripture. It's 176 verses. It's going to take me a while to read it, so y'all just sit back. I'm glad you're laughing. There ain't no way. Time and again, the psalmist praises and exalts the Lord and His Word. That's, that's the major theme of Psalm 119, the Word of God. He says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as, as in all riches. Now, David wrote this. And he probably wrote it as king. And he says, even more than the riches, I love your word. That's verse 14. I will delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 47. Your law is my delight. Verse 77. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. Verse 105. Your word is very pure and your servant loves it. Verse 140. You see, it's always been true that the godly person's delight is in the law of the Lord. That's Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. In the deepest part of his inner man, Paul hungers, he thirsts for God's righteousness. Paul prayed that the Christians in Ephesus would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He tells the church at Corinth, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's 2 Corinthians 4. Well, in verse 21, we see a, a corresponding but opposite principle. It's a different law that serves as a proof that sin is no longer his master and that he has been redeemed by God and made actually into the likeness of Christ. This law doesn't operate in the inner person, but in the members of the believer's body, that is, in his unredeemed and still sinful humanness. That conflicting principle is constantly making war against the law of the believer's mind. Now that's a here a term here that corresponds to the redeemed inner man. That's who Paul is talking about. He's not setting up a dichotomy between the mind and the body. He's contrasting the inner man or the redeemed new creation with the flesh. The flesh is that remaining part of the old man that stays with each believer until we receive our glorified bodies. And what a, what a glorious day that will be. Paul's not saying that his mind is always spiritual and his body is always sinful. That's what the Gnostics would have taught. In fact, he confesses that tragically, the fleshly principle, it undermines the law of his mind and temporarily takes him captive to the law of sin that dwells in his flesh. Now in Romans 8, Paul will go on to explain that what he has just said of himself could not apply to an unbeliever. Paul tells us there that the unbeliever is entirely in his mind and in his flesh hostile towards God. Unbelievers don't want to please God and could not please Him even if they did want to. Psalm 19 also parallels Romans 7 on the negative side in regard to the believer's continual struggle with the sin that he hates and that he longs to be rid of. 
Now, like believers of every age, the psalmist was continually challenged by evil forces and people that warred both against God and his own inner person. He says, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. A crushed soul. That's verse 20. He struggles in verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. In verse 71, he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Five times in Psalm 119, he begs for God to revive him with a deep humility. The psalmist ends by confessing, I have gone astray like, like a lost sheep. He implores God to seek your servant. God, seek me. And he affirms again, I do not forget your commandments. That attitude characterizes every mature believer. We'll see we have the source He says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. As Paul has already mentioned in the first part of the verse, the source of sin is no longer the inner man which is now redeemed and being sanctified and being conformed into the image of the Son. Like all believers while they are in this earthly life, this flesh, Paul found himself sometimes to be captive to the law of sin. There's a principle that evil is still present in him. But now, sin was only in the members of his body, in his old self. That's how Ephesians 4 characterizes it. Which was still dead because of sin. It's not that Paul's salvation was imperfect or in any way deficient. From the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are completely accepted by God and ready to meet Him. But as long as you remain in your mortal body, in your old, unredeemed humanness, you remain subject to temptation and to sin. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul explained to the Corinthian Christians, most of whom were spiritually immature and very much still fleshly. He continues, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Although a Christian cannot avoid living in the flesh, he can and should avoid walking according to the flesh in its simple ways. Well, number four is the final lament. Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, this is kind of a summary, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do you, you understand that Paul's final lament here is so much stronger than the others? He cries out in utter anguish and frustration, wretched man that I am. Now these negative terms, they call some commentators to believe that he could not be speaking about a Christian Uh, much less an apostle. Their argument is that if Paul was speaking of himself, he must have been speaking about his pre-conversion condition. I think that's wrong. A Scottish commentator, Robert Haldane, he discerningly noted that men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they have previously discovered the holiness of God 
and His law. We see it throughout Scripture. Isaiah had that happen. Peter had that hunt, had that happen. Right? Jesus just says, throw on this side and you're going to catch a ton of fish. And he's like, ah, I'm the fisherman. We fished all night and didn't catch a thing. But, but we'll be obedient. We'll do it. So he throws it over and the nets are breaking. There are so many fish. What does Peter say? Lord, get away from me. Why? For I'm a sinful man. <laughs> had, had, had Jesus said anything about sin? No, but he was in the presence of God, of deity. And he recognized, whoa. I am a sinner. In one of his penitential psalms, David expressed his great anguish of soul for not believing, or not being, excuse me, all that he knew that the Lord wanted him to be. Listen to what he says. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. In another one of his psalms, he says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my prayers. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And, his, and in His word do I hope. Now, folks, that's, that's the prayer of a godly person. Only a godly person could pray a prayer like that. Paul then asks a question to which he knows well, he well knows the answer. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now once again, he's, he's making clear that the cause of his frustration, the cause of, of, of his torment is this body of this death. It, it's only a believer's body that remains subject to sin and death. Now, deliver me, words he used there, has the basic idea of rescuing from danger. It was used of a soldier's going to a wounded comrade on the battlefield and carrying him to safety. Paul longed for the day when he would be rescued from the last vestige of his old, sinful, unredeemed flesh. It's reported that near Tarsus, which is where Paul was born, a certain ancient tribe sentenced convicted murderers to an extremely gruesome execution. The corpse of the slain person, the murdered person, was lashed tightly to the body of the murderer and remained there until the murderer himself died. In a few days, which was doubtless seemed like an eternity to the convicted man, the decay of the person that he had slain infected and killed him. Perhaps Paul has such torture in mind when he expressed his yearning to be freed from this body of death. The apostle bears witness without hesitation to the certainty of this eventual rescue, and he gives thanks to the Lord even before he is set free. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Later in the epistle, He further testifies, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As frustrating and painful as a believer's present struggle with sin may be, that temporary 
earthly predicament is nothing compared with the eternal glory that awaits him in heaven. The longing for heaven is all the more acute because they have a taste of God's righteousness and glory while they are still here on this earth. Paul says, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So that's why sometimes in Scripture you see, uh, I, I, I was saved, I am being saved, and I'm going to be saved. That going to be saved is when we cash in our chips, if you will. And, and when Jesus comes again, we're going to get a new body that is no longer subject to death and sin. On that great day, even our corruptible bodies will be redeemed and made incorruptible. Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Almost the exact same word that he closes out there in chapter 7. Now Paul's primary emphasis in the present passage here in Romans 7, it's not on the believer's eventual deliverance from sin, but it's on the conflict with sin that torments every spiritually sensitive child of God. He therefore ends by summarizing the two sides of that struggle. He says, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. A character in one of Tennyson's poems yearns, Ah, for a new man to arise in me, that the man I am may cease to be. The Christian knows that a new man has already been born in him, but he also must confess that the sinful part, his old man, has not yet ceased to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you again just for an opportunity to look into your word. Pray that you would use your word to transform us, uh, Lord, to help to conform us into the image of your Son. Help uh, play that it would uh, do, uh, go a long ways in our battle against sin. Father, you have called us to holiness, and that's not a hollow thing that you have done. Help us, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you're sitting out there this morning and you recognize that you have never come to know God. Okay, The sin stuff that we're talking about, it really doesn't bother you until maybe of lately. And something is saying in you, you need to listen. Uh, that's probably the Spirit of God. And you do need to listen. Uh, scripture is real clear. Okay, You have offended God with your sin. We all have. I say you. <laughs> we all have. And there's only one remedy for that. And that's His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. Have you come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ? If you have, tonight, if you have not, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You need to come and get it right. Ask God to forgive you of your sins, repent of your sins, turn from them, and then trust Jesus' finished work on the cross, what He did 2,000 years ago. We don't have to add a thing to it. We simply receive it. I encourage you to do that this morning.
If you're a believer, uh, the bottom line is, yeah, we're going to continue to, sh- to struggle with sin until we die or Jesus comes again and we receive our new bodies. That will be a glorious moment when we can stand in His presence holy. Sin will not be a hindrance in any way. We will have nothing to do. Nothing in us will respond to sin. Right now, every, almost everything in us responds to sin. That's what Paul's talking about. In his mind, he's a believer. And he tries to follow God's law. But he says, in my members, in my body, there is this law, this principle that is continually at work. And it does win sometimes. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins. Who confesses sins? Sinners. If we confess our sins, confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we struggle against this evil that is resident in our body, okay, the part of us, the Adam that, that is still there, as we struggle with that, remember, <laughs> God loves you. Does anybody know what, I know many of you do, but the first verse of the next chapter, Paul understands we're talking about battling sin with Christians here. What are they going to think? Verse 1, chapter 8. But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I told you this a couple of weeks ago. If you look at your life and try to find some assurance, that's probably going to lead you to some I don't know, degree of despair. <laughs> because if you know, if you truly know God, you know that you fall oh so short. And the closer you get to God, the more you realize how far short of God's glory that you fall. But he says, <laughs> there's there, therefore, now no condemnation. Don't look at your life, look to Jesus. I've struggled with this in the past. And when I look at my life, man, Satan can stack up stuff against me and I go, oh, no. But then I look to Jesus and what does He say? You're my child. You're you're a son of the King. You're forgiven. It's been paid for. Causes my heart to sing. In your struggle with sin, look to Christ as a believer. Always If you're lost, look to Christ. If you're saved, look to Christ. It doesn't change. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.